1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. For God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things that are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You may sit down. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. These, those words from Hebrews 6, verses 10 through 12. One of the things that Satan does is that he imitates God, and he kind of copies the good things that God has arranged and has blessed us with and turns it into bad. Satan is not a being that can create out of nothing like God does. God created the world out of nothing, just out of nothing. Um, and he has saved us who are nothing, and made us something in Christ. Satan cannot do that, but he only imitates and cheapens and degrades and, is, uh, and makes artificial God's good gifts to us. We notice that maybe especially in the book of Revelation where Satan has his own unholy trinity in chapter 13. Um, in Revelation 7... Um, we, well, he, in the book of Revelations, it's talked about how that he gets his followers to have marks on their foreheads and that kind of thing. But that was God's idea first. Uh, look in Revelation 7.3. So that's just another counterfeit that 
Satan has arranged to try to bring God down to a level or two. The wonderful thing about it is that Christ cannot, that Jesus, that God also can use Satan's tools and turn that around into his glory, by his grace and for his glory. And we'd just like to talk about a few of those things today. The title that I've chosen, um, are you ready? It's a little bit, well, it's a mathematical equation. Now, I know that we don't do math too much here in church. We do a lot of Bible and that kind of thing, but not so much math. That's mostly Monday through Friday at school, right, students? But just today, we'll be doing a little bit of math, just a little bit. And you know about equations, that this and this equals this. So here's the title. Are you ready? Human vices plus God's great grace equals heavenly virtues. Human vices plus God's great grace equals heavenly virtues. And there's five of those that the Bible talks about uh, that I'm especially thinking about that we'd like to talk about together here. Of these human vices that God can turn into heavenly virtues, of the five, four of them are spoken about in 1 Corinthians. Hopefully you're still in 1 Corinthians 1 where Dave read. Four of these are found in 1 Corinthians and I wonder sometimes uh, why that is. I might have an idea or two, but perhaps you would be thinking about that as we go through here and would have something to share afterwards. All right. Human vices plus God's great grace equals heavenly virtues. The first one that I'm thinking of is the vice of foolishness. And you might notice and look again at the portion that Dave read, and the word foolish or foolishness is found just a number of times there. Foolishness is something to be avoided for sure. We know that. Uh, We just need to go to the book of Proverbs and notice what God says about the vice of foolishness. And maybe we should just go back there just a little bit and notice just a few. So if you will turn back to Proverbs 4, or the book of Proverbs, I think that in the book of Proverbs, fool or foolish or foolishness is given 62 times. So we won't look at all 62 here or anything, but, but just a couple. Proverbs 9, 6 says, Forsake the foolish and live and go in the way of understanding. Yes, good advice, wonderful advice. Um, Proverbs seventeen twenty eight. Proverbs seventeen twenty eight. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise, and he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Proverbs eighteen seven. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. 
And we could look at others. Uh, I'm thinking also of Job 13.5. Job's friends were telling him some interesting things or were telling him some things. And at one point, Job Job 13.5 says, Oh, that ye would altogether hold your peace and it should be your wisdom. And I think that was Job's way of saying, if you would just hold your lips together and quit spewing out stuff, there might be people passing by that would mistake you for being wise. Oh, that you would altogether hold your peace. And the verses that I just read in Proverbs have to do with foolishness comes out of the mouth so much. Foolishness. But then, if we come back to 1 Corinthians, we notice that the foolishness here is a little different. Do you notice in verse 18 that people think that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness? Verse 21, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of preaching. People think that preaching is foolishness, but we here today know better, do we not? It's the wisdom of God. People call it foolishness, but God uses preaching in so many, many good ways. God is all-wise, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he has chosen and arranged that a primary way of God's word being proclaimed and shown to the world is through preaching. Now, there's lots of other ways, too, of course, right? How else can God's word be shown and seen and appreciated by the watching world? Well, by singing and friendship evangelism and all kinds of ways. But there's something that God says is primary about preaching, God has chosen that one of the paramount ways of forgetting for the message of God and salvation to people in the world is through preaching. And so here we are today, and you're listening to that here. It's, many people call it foolishness, but God says that it is the wisdom of God. I think that we should be, remind ourselves of how important it is, the preaching of God's word, and especially the preaching of the cross. To honor God's word by listening and staying awake, which you all are doing so well, and obeying the word of God as it's proclaimed. So we here today are hearing preaching for maybe 40 minutes, 45 minutes, but then we have all week to honor that by loving the Lord and, and obeying his word. The foolishness of preaching. I think verse 25 is kind of special. I just assume and imagine that as Paul was writing that, he was kind of smiling. Oh, I'm just guessing that in our 
if we would be writing that today, that we would put the foolishness of God in quotation marks because there is nothing like, the, God has no foolishness. But for us to understand and appreciate that, I think that Paul wrote that with a smile on his lips and in his heart because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Thank God. Foolishness in speaking, foolishness in action, the book of Proverbs and throughout the Bible, let's stay far away from it. The foolishness of God by preaching, let's adhere to that and love God, love the word, love the preaching of God's word. So the first one is foolishness. It's a tool of Satan, but God can turn that around and use his foolishness. I'm using verse, the terminology of verse 25 there in 1 Corinthians to turn that around and so that God receives much honor and glory. The second one is, so the first one, foolishness. The second human vice that by God's great Grace equals a heavenly virtue is that of pride, pride. And again, we can go to the book of Proverbs as well as various other places and, and to know and understand how God feels about pride. It's a human vice that's terrible in God's eyes. In fact, God himself says that God resists the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. He says, God resisteth the proud. It's Proverbs 3.34, a little bit different there, but then in the book of James and in the book of 1 Peter, both of those quote Proverbs 3.34, God resisteth the proud. E-T-H, he resisteth the proud. That means God resisteth the proud yesterday, he does today, and he will tomorrow. Past, present, and future. God resisteth the proud. I understand that to mean that one of the worst sins would be pride. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a great fall. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. Proverbs eleven two. Pride. I remember that just a month or two ago that Glenn Miller said that and I think I'm quoting I think I understood him right to say that his two biggest problems or sins or temptations are that of lust and greed he said maybe you remember that too as I sat there listening to him I thought I think and since I think that really for me I think it's probably lust and pride and without meaning to well I think in my life it's probably pride the number one issue that I deal with day after day pride but then again Jeremiah 9, um, I think I can find that pretty fast here. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, way back in the Old Testament, 
Here's what God said. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this. And I think it'd be right to say, he that is proud, let him be proud in this. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So it is all right to be proud and glory in the Lord, is it not? And 1 Corinthians one thirty one, last verse in 1 Corinthians, that according as it is written, and then he quotes from Jeremiah, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. It is fine and right and maybe necessary for us to be proud of the Lord but only in the Lord, not ourselves. Galatians 6.14 But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I am crucified unto the world and the world unto me, something like that. God forbid that I should glory, except for God. It's, I think, important for us as Christians in the 21st century to realize that of ourselves, we're nothing. Christ and the cross, they're everything. Let's save our pride and glorying only in the Lord. So, there's that foolishness, which is the good kind of foolishness. There's pride, and the third human vice that I'm thinking about is that uh, which is called covetousness. Do you know about covetousness? It means to wish for enviously. You know, I wish I was more popular. I wish that I could be like, they, like he is, more witty. wish I'd be better at sports. wish I'd be pretty like she is or smart like she is. wish I'd be more successful. wish yeah, covetousness, to wish for enviously. And the Bible says... Luke 12, 15, take heed and beware of covetousness. We understand that covetousness, covetousness is a human vice that shouldn't once be named among us. The thing about covetousness, the thing about envy, the thing about covetousness is that, well, I would say two things. Number one, it's that vice especially becomes evident um, when it's in relation to our peers, or like someone has said, those near in status, like our family, our friends, our neighbors, our contemporaries. We understand, don't we? So I don't have any problem um, um, becoming covetous of, say, George Washington, or Abraham Lincoln, or Robert Frost, or anybody like that. I, I'm not even covetousness of, of my family doctor, like which at one time was Richard Satriani, MD, down. Uh, no, no, but 
my tendency as a human vice to become covetous would be more about like my brothers or you or somebody like that. One thing about covetousness that it's, it's usually in relation to those near to us, our peers. And C.S. Lewis has said, one of the most horrifying aspects of envy is, is that we are most likely to feel envious of those who are similarly called, equipped, and gifted. Parents envy, envy other parents for the success they have with their children, and so on. The second thing about covetousness is that it especially comes to the fore and is an issue for us when our distinction and our ability and privilege is threatened. And I could just tell you a little story about how a number of years ago, um, Nate Kaufman had uh, a class on the book of Revelation here at Winter Bible School. And he did such a good job, and maybe you remember that too. He, he did so very well, and it surprised me because he hadn't ever really been a, study, a student of prophecy, of eschatology. Um, and you understand that he's my brother. And I always kind of thought a little bit that I probably knew more about eschatology and was more familiar with that than he ever was. And not only that, not only is he my brother, but he's my little brother. And he's... And so at that point, I had a decision to make, a choice to make. Is that something that I become covetous about? Or am I glad for his success and his ability? Envy. The disease becomes, the vice becomes evident, especially to those near to us, number one, and especially when our own distinction and privilege and eminence is threatened. It's a terrible vice. And the Word of God has a lot to say about the awfulness of covetousness. In fact, in, next, in our Sunday school lesson for next week, in Ephesians 5.3, we'll get to that. So maybe I can just give you a sneak peek of our Sunday school lesson next Sunday. Ephesians 5.3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not once be named among you as become a saints. Verse 5, for this, we know, for this ye know, that no warmonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, or covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And the interesting thing, I think, is that both of those verses, verse 3, Ephesians 3, again in Ephesians 5, that terrible vice, that terrible sin of covetousness is paired with what we think might be more terrible, which we sometimes think, sexual sins and that kind of thing. Let it not once be named among you as become a saint. So why am I speaking so long about covetousness? Because 1 Corinthians 12.31 says, But covet, 
earnestly the best gifts. So we are to stay far away from covetousness, and yet there is also, on the other hand, it's like foolishness and pride in that we stay away from foolishness, and yet we acknowledge the foolishness of preaching. We stay far away from pride, and yet we realize that we get to glory in the Lord. Covetousness is that way too. We stay far away from that, and we understand that it shouldn't once be named among us, just like the Bible says. But the Bible also says, but covet earnestly the best gifts. And a little later on it will say, um, okay, but covet earnestly the best gifts. First Corinthians twelve thirty one. And there's a list of gifts there, like apostles, prophets, teachers, and so on. And the teaching especially there is about tongues and that kind of thing. Tongues and the interpretation of tongues. But covet earnestly the best gifts. So does that mean that... Well, I think that it means... I've picked up somewhere that it's... That is in the second person plural in the original language. And the meaning is, but covet earnestly those with the best gifts. I think... What God had in mind there, in my poor, limited understanding, is that we, as a church group in Corinth, and yet today, uh, we're so happy that there's lots of good gifts in our church, and we would hope and covet and wish that the good gifts are all included. I don't think it's saying that I am supposed to covet that I have the best gifts, but that they're included in our assembly, in our church, so that we can all grow together. But covet earnestly the best gifts. We are called to covet that. I'm grateful that in this church, as big as it is and as small as it is in our assembly today, that the best gifts, the good gifts, all the gifts are well represented I thank God for that. The Bible also says that we should covet to prophesy. That's in 1 Corinthians 14, 39. Covet to prophesy. And again, I think the teaching is much the same, that we're to covet the best gifts. Covet to prophesy. The Bible also says, despise not prophesyings. And I think that Since that is true, that we are not to despise prophesying, that we also should not despise the prophets who do the prophesying. And I also realize and recognize that the prophesying that it's spoken of here might be a little bit different than the prophets that we have in our midst in the church of God in the 21st century. But I think that the point that can well be made don't despise prophesying and don't despise the prophets that give that. In the church of Christ, we need prophets among us. I think it's significant that the Bible doesn't say anywhere else about any of the other gifts that don't despise teaching, or don't despise the administrators, the rulers, or don't despise, certainly, of course, the Bible wouldn't say, don't despise those that have the gift of mercy, because everyone loves them. But the Bible does say, despise not 
prophesyings. And by extension, don't despise the prophets that are among us. They're one of the gifts, they're one of the gifts that we need so badly. Prophets, you know, they're a little bit easier to despise. They have a way of speaking so negatively. They give a negative message in a negative tone. They're blunt. They're direct. They're not diplomatic at all. They're straight shooting, and they get under... It's easier for prophets to get under the rest of our skin. The Bible says, despise not prophesyings. We need prophets. Vance Havner has said that today's church is largely a non-profit organization, and that is a detriment to us. We need prophets. Just this week, I read uh, the book, Kidnapped in Haiti, about the, the 17 hostages back in 2000, the fall of 2021. You know, you've perhaps read that too. The book by um, Katrina Hoover-Lee. And I just noticed there that Sam, who some of you probably know a lot better than I do, Sam, it, the book didn't say, but I gathered that he's a prophet. And the, the book didn't say uh, Mrs. Lee was uh, circumspect, but I gathered that he, the group, sometimes wearied of him just a little bit. Because he's a prophet, I think. And kind of a negative message, negative tone. He's blunt, straight shooting, not diplomatic at all. He, he would um, be the kind to call... If someone else is inconsistent, the prophet will call him out. There's at least one time in the book that Sam did that. But who was it that was the most consistent in preaching and witnessing in those 60-some days. It was Sam, remember? Who was it that led Peter, one, uh, another hostage, to the Lord? Well, it was Peter, wasn't it? Despise not prophesying. Despise not prophets. We need prophets in our midst. Who was it who um, was most prone to apologize about something that he said. Well, it was Sam. You can read it in the book. Despise not prophesyings. Pretty long bunny trail there, wasn't it? Well, we're talking about covetousness and to covet earnestly the best gifts in our church. I think it's time to move on to the fourth vice that God is calling us to be a virtue in our lives, and that is the one spoken of in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians 16, 15, and there is such an interesting word there about Stephanus and his household. Do you know about them? We know very little about Stephanus. He's mentioned in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, and then again in the last chapter, 1 Corinthians 16, 15. We don't know much about Stephanus or his servants and his family, but it talks about the house of Stephanus. I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. I would have liked to learn to know Stephanus, I think, and his household, his group 
of, that was around him. We think about, we only think of addiction in a bad sense, don't we? There's drug addiction and smoking addiction, gambling addicts and workaholics and chocoholics and that kind of thing. As we think of drug addiction, someone has said that there's kind of three stages of drug addiction. There's the desire stage where you're kind of in a habit and you just desire more the drug. But that soon leads to the, de the demand level where you just have to have it. You need more and more. And then, of course, real quickly, it come, you get to the dependence stage where it's just your life and you have to have it for life. Drug addiction. It's also been said that workaholics work for work's sake. Drug addiction and workaholic and that kind of thing. But here, the word is used in a different way and in a positive sense as a heavenly virtue. These people, this group of people led by Stephanus, they had addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. How perfectly wonderful. I think that is such a testimony. It must have been a testimony in the church at Corinth and in the community in that day. Addicted to the service of the Lord and to the service of the saint. What greater commendation could be said of someone than that he is addicted to the service of the church? The church at Weavertown needs those kind of addicts, serving addicts. They, and so does every other church. Paul certainly personified that himself, didn't he? He was that kind of a person. He just kept going and going and going. He was past the desire stage and past the demand stage, and he was on the dependence stage uh, where his goal was just to serve and to help and to lead people to the Lord. It was his life work. It was his passion. It was his everything. It was his all. He was addicted to the servants of the saints, the servants of the church. Verse 18, for they, speaking still, I think of, at least in part, of Stephanus and his household, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. They have refreshed my spirit. And I thank God for the servers among us who are a little bit like Stephanus in that they just love to serve and they live to serve other people, and serve the Lord in any way that they can. Thank God for the servers among us. I think maybe we, did, we just talked a, minute, a few minutes ago about some of the prophets' weaknesses. And if I can just say um, one thing about servers, those who love to serve and are so good at serving and do it in spite of exhaustion and fatigue, they just... Serve and serve some more. Thank God for them. One of the weaknesses that I have, think I have noticed, that I have noticed maybe correctly, an observation that I have made is that servers among us tend, 
that some servers among us tend to perhaps a little bit look down on others who aren't quite as vigorous. Uh, maybe perhaps. That was, take this with a grain of salt just in case it's worth anything. Um, I think the server has a tendency to look around from his busy schedule of serving, 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 look around just enough to see that there's other people that are a little bit lazy and aren't getting much done, and they should also be doing what I'm doing without perhaps realizing as they should that that person might not be as healthy and simply is not able to do as much as the server himself is. And besides all that, that person could be serving the Lord in ways that he can, that the server is not noticing quite like he should. Serving, addiction. The workaholics work for work's sake. Stephanus' work was for love's sake. Thank, I thank God for those who are so ad addicted to serving that in our church here at Weavertown that, that they keep refreshing the rest of our spirits. Thank God for them. So we've talked about foolishness and about pride and the vice of covetousness and that of addiction and have turned all four of those around to notice that the Bible says that we are to Appreciate and do all of those in a godly, heavenly virtue way. The fifth one, the last one, that one is jealousy. And for that, we move out of 1 Corinthians and go to Romans 11. Did you know, well, yeah, we talked, jealousy is similar to covetousness. And you might be thinking, so I'm supposed to be jealous? No, the Bible doesn't say that. But the Bible does say that we are to make other people jealous. Did you know? You can look it up in Romans 11, 11. And that, you might know that Romans 11 is especially talking about the Jewish nation. And Romans 11, 11 says... I say then, have they, the Jewish nation, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. We have been called. We have been born again. And a lot of that is through the witness of the Jewish nation. I mean, without them, we would hardly have the Bible. And Jesus himself, our Lord and Savior, descended from the Jewish nation. We owe them a lot, but when we become born again, our calling is, you see it there, Romans 11, 11, to provoke them to jealousy. We are called to provoke especially the Jewish nation to jealousy so that, so that they become so jealous of what we have that they want that and are able to experience salvation as well. Paul did that. He had a consuming love for his kinsmen according to the flesh. And Romans 11 later, uh, Romans 11, 30 and 31 shows that we certainly want to do that in a merciful way. Verses 30 
And 31 has the word mercy or a form of it three times. Jealousy. We are to provoke others, especially Jewish people, but anybody else, to jealousy. Verse 14 says, If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. Pretty much the same word, jealousy, emulation. As I thought of that again, I thought of a book that I just read not long ago. This is The Search by Lorna Simcox. And she was a managing editor of, um, of um, Israel My Glory magazine, published by the Friends of Israel. And I'd just like to read maybe a little bit at length about what she says. This is her autobiography. She was a Jewish lady who came to know the Lord, I think, in her 30s. And she speaks here about her mother-in-law, her Gentile mother-in-law, who was a Christian. And she herself, Lorna, understood so very little. She was steeped in Judaism, but understood so little about the Christian life. But she says, I never interrogated her, her mother-in-law, concerning religion. Instead, I watched her like a hawk. By 5.30 every morning, she was already in the kitchen, reading her Bible and praying. The Bible was so worn out, she must have read it a million times, but still she kept on reading it. I had read a substantial amount of the Jewish Bible in Hebrew school, but most of the time I had found it irrelevant and difficult to understand. So what was my mother-in-law reading that held her attention so raptly? After reading, she would pray. She simply bowed her head and talked to the Lord as though he were a close and respected friend who had sat down beside her and had asked her how things were going. She poured her heart out to him, praying for people by name and asking him to heal this one, strengthen that one, provide money to pay bills for yet another, so on and so forth. She prayed generally, asking the Lord to provide as he saw fit, always thanking him for the prayers he had already answered and for the works he had already accomplished. I marveled, she says, and I have that verb underlined. I marveled at how personal her prayers were and how easily she petitioned the great God of the universe to stretch forth his hand into the trivial, insignificant matters of everyday life. And for her, he stretched forth his hand on a regular basis. I had never been taught to pray, believing he would attend to the everyday cares of my life. All our prayers were Liturgical. I wonder if I pronounced that right. They came from a Hebrew prayer book called a Siddur. There are prayers to recite in the morning, prayers to recite in the evening, prayers to recite when someone else dies, when someone dies, prayers to recite on the Sabbath, and so on. How then could Thelma, a follower of Jesus, enjoy such a close personal relationship with God? She had a pipeline to the Almighty, all right. It was as plain as day to see, but that was not what I. And I have this word underlined. But that is not what I envied. Are you thinking about Romans 11? But that was not what I envied. It was the Almighty's pipeline to her. 
He seemed to communicate with her. No matter how rough the waters became, she knew he loved her and she loved him. They enjoyed an intimacy with each other that brought her peace in the midst of turmoil, joy in the midst of heartache, and absolute assurance that he would one day usher her into the, his divine presence. She believed that her bad had been unconditionally forgiven. Oh, yes. She did not see God as an awesome judge, weighing her good days good deeds against her bad. She believed that her bad had been unconditionally forgiven. She, was, she already knew her eternal destination, and it was heaven. She had her ticket in her hand, stamped and ready to go. I had never seen such a thing before, and, I, and I, here's a word that I underline. I wanted it, she says. I had everything I had ever thought would make me happy. I had married for love, and fortunately for me, my husband also provided stability and financial security. I had a good marriage, a good profession, a nice house, and material prosperity, but it all paled in, compa in comparison to what Thelma had. I had an emptiness where her cup was running over, and what made things worse was that I knew her cup was somehow being filled through faith in Jesus, and Jesus was not for Jews." That's what Lorna thought at that point. But she soon, largely through the influence of her mother-in-law, who she watched like a hawk and who she envied, bringing us back to Romans 11. Now maybe you, maybe I, don't have a Jewish person that we can relate to. I think Romans 11, 11 is for us anyway. If... There are people around us who don't know the Lord, who need the Lord, who are watching us, and if we can somehow provoke them to jealousy just a little bit, what a heavenly virtue that would be. So we've gone through these five human vices. Human vices plus God's great grace equals heavenly virtues. These five, thank God that he is calling us to, some, to these things here today and that he provides the grace, you know, God's great grace. Thank God for Jesus. Through his strength and power, we can do these things just as we ought. Heavenly virtues displayed here even as we're yet in this world. Would you kneel with me for prayer? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you especially today for your word. It's forever settled in heaven and for what it teaches. We thought of these five concepts today, vices that the Bible teaches against, vices that shouldn't once be named among us, human vices, um, but, when, but also your word teaches that we are in right ways to do those things. We're, even, we're supposed to, be, um, to love the foolishness of preaching, and we're supposed to be addicted to serving. And Lord, I pray that in our evangelistic efforts. Would you guide us especially in that, I pray? And as we um, witness to others, I pray that we could do that in the right way so that we can make them jealous and in so doing be 
instrumental in bringing others to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We can do that whether we live at home and interact with other people or whether we're far away. I pray that we could be effective missionaries for you and that we as a church can grow in these five virtues and you uh, do them rightly by your grace until you call us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.